Welcome to the Knox Podcast, featuring a sermon from the Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kenmore, New York. For more information about Knox Church, visit our website at knoxepc.com or email us at office at knoxepc.com. To request prayer, send an email to pastor at knoxepc.com. If you open your Bibles with me, we'll be going on James, starting chapter 1, verse 26, reading to chapter 2, verse 7. It's located on page 1172 of your pew Bibles. You open your Bibles with me and stand as we hear God's holy word today. Please hear the word. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is useless. Religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, have a good seat just for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom? You belong. May the Lord convict and inspire us with his reading today. Please have a seat. In poll after poll of church members who no longer attend church, when they were asked, why do you no longer attend church? At the top of almost every list of responses, were people who said, we want to come to church, we want to encounter God, but we just couldn't stand the hypocrisy any longer. We just couldn't be around people who said they believed one thing, but obviously clearly did the opposite. That's not new news, by the way. That's not a recent phenomenon. Hypocrisy always crops up in religious communities. It's a byproduct of sin. Jesus had very strong words for the religious hypocrites of his time. He didn't tolerate how people would pretend that they were holy, yet in their lives they showed a shocking lack of grace and compassion and love. In Matthew 23, Jesus went all out. It's, it's oh, you ever think that only Jesus only says nice, flowery, uplifting things. Look at Matthew 23, where he denounces hypocrites, the Pharisees as hypocrites, seven times. And not in light words either. He said, virtually none of you are practicing what you're preaching. 
None of you. And these were the preeminent religious experts of the day. I want you to hear a sample of what Jesus would say to these hypocrites. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law and to Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of your cup and your dish, but yet inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Jesus had very strong things to say to hypocrites. Hypocrisy doesn't cut it with a God who sees you how you really are. None of us, we can fool each other great. We cannot fool God. He can see to the heart of who you are. The hard question we have to ask ourselves when confronted with this subject of hypocrisy, as James is talking about here, is are we like this? Are we hypocrites as well? Do we, are we all about cheap talk, but not sacrificial action? Are we about cheap talk and not sacrificial action? Well, fortunately, Jesus doesn't give up on us. That's why he said the woes to the Pharisees. He wasn't outright condemning them and saying, you guys are lost. He was calling them back. And he calls us back, and James calls us back. And as James continues in his letter, this apostle speaks to the doers of the word that we talked about last week. He says, I want to talk to you as people who are Christians who generally want to practice what they're preaching. I hope that's you, James says. So how can we do this? Well, if we were to construct a comprehensive plan of how we can practice what we preach, it would take volumes. So James narrows it down. He gives us three points of where hypocrisy, he sees as a pastor, hypocrisy tends to spring up in the church. He's seen it again and again and again. So he says, I want to focus on these three areas because chances are they've touched your life. And if not, they might in the future. So let's, let's focus on these three areas where hypocrisy tends to take root. Well, last, last couple of years when Knox Church was going through its own vision formation process, one of the first steps we took was we polled the church. We sent out a lot of surveys. We had a lot of feedback. And we asked, among all these questions, where are some of our problem areas? It's always a very uncomfortable. It's asking for that constructive criticism. It's very uncomfortable. But one of the biggest things that we got in response, people said at the top of that list of problems in the church, was gossip. That it's just rampant. It's rampant in Knox Church. It's rampant in most any church you go to. It's a problem with sinners that we like to talk about people in not very kind ways behind their back. We disparage people. We tear them down. We say, look at their problems. And one of the big problems with, with gossip is that nobody ever thinks that they're the gossip. They're very quick to point at other people, and they'll tell you, let me tell you who are the people in the church who are the gossips. Come in. And of course, they're gossiping when they do that. We don't point fingers at ourselves. Sticks and stones may break bones, but gossip breaks church unity. And it's just one example of how the tongue, how our words can hurt. Our words can destroy what God builds up. Jesus said in Matthew 12, he said, out of the heart 
The mouth speaks. The words you say tend to reflect what's inside of you sooner or later. It's like the congregation member who, when they had a work day at their church, he spent the entire work day shadowing the pastor. Didn't do any work, just kept walking behind the pastor, and the pastor kept noticing. Finally, the pastor turned around and said, what are you doing? You know, pick up a hand, let's get, let's get to work. And the guy said, well, I'm just listening to hear what you say when you hit your thumb with a hammer. He wanted to hear the heart of the pastor. Not when the pastor's up there giving the easy, flowery words of the sermon. What happens when the pastor's in pain? Does he swear? I don't know. James says in verse 26 that there are plenty of people who are more than fine to wear the label of the religion, but they don't practice vocal control. They don't keep a tight lid on what they say. He says that these are the people who sing beautifully on Sunday, but on Monday, they're the people gossiping, and they're the people yelling and screaming and swearing. They're the people who don't practice vocal control. And one thing I like about James is he gives us these little word pictures all throughout his whole letter. And the word picture right here in verse 26, he says it's the word picture of somebody trying to ride a bucking bronco. You ever seen that at a rodeo or even at like one of those mechanical broncos? And the whole point is just to, to jump on the back of this beast and hold on as tight as you can to hopefully last and maybe even bring it under control. But in this case, his word picture is not somebody riding a bronco is somebody riding a giant tongue. And that's already kind of a weird thing to think about. Tongues are very disturbing the more you think and look at them. But it's like, imagine somebody riding this giant tongue and they're grabbing onto those reins. And they're pulling back. Whoa, boy, whoa. And really, anytime you're riding something that's bucking, there's one of two ways that's going to pan out. Either the thing's going to buck you off and it's going to have total control and domination. Or you're going to get those reins and you're going to pull, and you're going to hold on tight until you have control. James says, does your tongue have control over you? Or do you, with the help and grace of God, have tight control of the reins of your tongue? Last week, we already looked at how James said it was very essential for us to be slow to speak, to be discerning of the words, and very mindful of the words that are coming out of our mouth. I'll say, oh, I'll admit right here, that's one of my big flaws is sometimes I will speak without thinking. And in the past, especially in the past, when I was working with teenagers and I was joking around with them and sometimes my careless words would hurt them. And I'm thinking I'm just teasing them, but I'm tearing them down. And I had to start to be very, very careful of the words coming out of my mouth. Because as James says, a Christian who wants to practice what they preach won't let words come out of their mouth that hurt other people or cast shade on Jesus Christ. Now, we can, we can try to censor our language, but Jesus already told us, he the, the, said the key to controlling your tongue isn't to get control of it the moment you start talking the things you shouldn't be saying. He says we need to address our heart first because out of our heart the words come. So if we address our heart, if our heart is a heart that beats for God, a heart that reads the Word, a heart that wants to be more and more like Christ every day, guess what? The words that come out are going to naturally start being better. You're going to start saying nicer things to people. You're going to stop swearing so much, stop being as crude. You're going to have the words 
that honor God. James then identifies a second area we tend to be hypocritical, which was failing to look after people who need our help the most. He says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now, throughout the Bible, you might hear a phrase like orphans and widows or something very similar to that. This is kind of a catch-all phrase for people who are poor, defenseless, or unsupported in society. So it can be widows and orphans, but it can also be people who are the mentally ill, people who are unsupported, people who are abandoned, who have no support structure, who are the vulnerable and the weak in society. He says, that's, that's the widows and orphans. That's this whole group right here. And God says our job is to look after them. The problem is that these people, by very nature of being vulnerable, are being taken advantage by others. They're vulnerable. People always prey on the vulnerable. And we know very well that our society today is set up in such a way that oppresses and pushes down vulnerable people, especially the poor in such a way that it doesn't give them much of a path out of being poor. It keeps them where they're at. There's so many ways that our society oppresses the vulnerable. Poor people are sold cheap goods so that they have to keep buying the same cheap goods and they end up spending more than they would if they bought quality goods at a higher price. Elder abuse is rampant in our nursing homes today. It's shameful. It's disgusting. It's one of those things that goes on behind closed doors and we don't see it until we hear about it. Go, how could that happen? Widows tend to be targeted more than any other group in America for subjects of scams, of being defrauded because they're weak and they are vulnerable. Kids who come from broken homes and don't have that support structure of a mom and a dad and a healthy home life, they tend to do much more poorly in school and they struggle in their scholastic life. Unwanted babies in our culture are cast out in the garbage. Ethnic groups are discriminated against. against. People are in distress everywhere. We don't have to look very far. Now in the Batman comics, I I grew up, I read a lot of Batman. I, I like that. Whenever Gotham City was in distress, and it got a little over the head of the police, the Commissioner Gordon would go up to the rooftop of the police station and he would turn on the bat signal. I don't know where you make these bat signals, but Batman got him this giant signal that sent a, a beam of light into the sky. And whenever he saw the bat signal in the sky, Batman knew it was time to pause Netflix and put on his rubber suit and get out there and help people. Now you're awake. Batman had to see the distress signal and know it was time to get into action. There was somebody who needed help. People send out their own distress signals if you look closely enough. They will say things. They will have cues. You will notice if you're not so involved in your own life, you will see distress signals going up all over the place. The question is, who's going to answer their call? Batman can only handle Gotham City. We got to handle the rest. We know that God identifies himself as the personal superhero of the widows and orphans and those in distress. In Psalm 68, when he says, God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. 
And make no mistake, God is more than sufficient for that task. But then in turn, he turns around and calls us to be his sidekicks. He says, I want to include you in this work of being a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. So suit up, join me, and let's get to work. Jesus told us who among you is hungry, who among you lacks clothes, who among you is in prison, who among you is in distress. If you go out and help those people, I will treat it personally like you're helping me. I will honor you and bless you in a way that you helped me if you help others. People in distress, they send out signals all the time to Christians. And James says, if we really want to practice what we're preaching, if we really want to be people who are, have integrity, we need to be looking for those signals, and then we need to take our talents and our gifts and whatever God has given us and go out and just help. Help any way you can. Now, the world's going to tell you there's very little point in this. Why help those people? They don't really have anything to contribute back to you. You're not going to get anything in return. Why are you bothering with those poor losers? Why are you bothering with the sick people? Why are you bothering with those weird outcasts? Because God is their defender, and so are we. Who has God called you to care for? Who has God called you to mentor? Who could you give your time and your effort and your kindness to this week? You know at least one person. Right now, you know them. Who who needs you in their life? And some of you are already doing it. And God bless you if that's the case. And some of us are going, but it's hard. But it takes time. It takes extra effort. And my life is really busy. Maybe it's time we started. And finally, at the end of chapter, or at the start of chapter two here, James then goes on to identify a third area where we tend to be very hypocritical in the Christian church. And that involves the subject of favoritism, or as we call it today, discrimination. You see, God said in Romans that there, for those of us who are in Christ, there is neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither Republican or Democrat, neither any of these lines don't exist in Christianity. We are all Christians. There's one tier of Christianity. There's no power struggle. There's no multiple tiers that you work your way up through. There are just Christians. So there shouldn't be favoritism. There shouldn't be people who are held in higher esteem in the church than others. So why does favoritism creep into the church anyway? Well, James then gives us another word picture, a little parable here. He says, well, there's two people who come to church. And one of them is wearing this gold-threaded finery. It's the most beautiful wear. And by nature, people want to give them the finest seats here. And, and I don't know in a Presbyterian church if the finest seat would be in the front pew or the back pew. But it would be you know, the finest seat, right? And the second person who comes to this church is wearing more mud and dung than clothes. And they're told, sit on the floor. And despite the both of these people being Christians, the man with a better appearance is treated better because that's what the world does. And the man who smells is dismissed. And it's not a hypothetical scenario, by the way. This isn't something that James is just conjuring out of thin air. He sees it in the church. It's something that continues to be a problem. In the 18th century, 
John Wesley, you know his name, you've sung his hymns. He's a preacher and he goes out and he wanted to preach to the poor coal miners in England. And these people weren't invited to church because they were too filthy and they were too dirty. So John Wesley would go out into the, and, and call them and minister to them in the graveyards and in the fields. And he would have impromptu church services because these men and, and their families weren't invited to church. And John Wesley finally got so tired of this, he said, I'm going to just form my own church. And that's where the Methodist church got their roots. And he said, the Methodist church is going to be a place where the poor are accepted as much as the rich. And that worked well for a while. But favoritism keeps creeping in. And a hundred years later, many Methodist churches ended up having two different areas in the church, in the sanctuary. And the poor people were actually asked to come in through a separate door and to sit on less comfortable benches. And they were actually partitioned off so that they could see the pastor, but the rich people wouldn't have to see the poor people. They were partitioned off in the Methodist church. And a husband and wife who got treated to the poor section of that church one too many times said, we're going to go off and we're going to start our own church where the poor are accepted. And they ended up founding the Salvation Army. Favoritism keeps creeping into the church. And we need to be very vigilant about it. Don't we do this? We try not to. We like to think of ourselves as, I don't discriminate. I don't see color. I don't see people who are rich as better than poor. I don't do this. But we kind of do. Because sometimes if somebody looks nicer and they have it more put together, we tend to be nicer to them in return. There are people in our lives that's just easier to approach if they look like us and they talk like us and they dress like us. But when they're not, when they're a little off, a little different, it's harder to approach them. We may not even consciously realize that we're discriminating against people who have less education. People might be overweight or older or younger or whatever have you. But sometimes we are. I encountered this personally in my church about five years ago, my, my previous church. And back then when we were doing youth group, we had a girl, I'm going to call her Tammy. And Tammy came in one day. She had never gone to church in her life. Her family didn't go to church. She just got dragged in. She heard that we were doing youth group. And she showed up one day. And we're always happy to see new kids. But the problem was, she was one of the hardest kids we've ever had to care for. Because I've never met such a narcissistic and self-involved girl as this girl. Everything was about her. And she would complain about, if we were doing a game, she would whine about it. If we had snacks out, she said, is this all you have? If we sat down to pray, she's like, oh, do we have to close our eyes? Like this, it kept going on and on. And she was rude to everybody. And she was just, she was grating. And she was annoying. And as leaders, we thought she was annoying. And she was so bad that Tammy and she, the, the, the one thing that was the worst about her is that she kept showing up every week. She would keep coming to youth group. And she got so annoying that the other kids stopped coming. And I remember vividly one day, the leaders got together and said, we need to talk about Tammy. We've tried working with her, and she just doesn't get it. Like, she's, she just doesn't. She's not calming down. And that, all the time that she's here... She's just driving all of us insane. I have one of my leaders say, my own kid doesn't want to come to youth group anymore, and I can't make her come. Maybe we need to tell Tammy not to come 
anymore. And we prayed about it, and we talked about it. But we came to the conclusion that this girl was not getting the gospel anywhere else in her life. And Jesus told us not to show favoritism to anyone. So our doors were open. And if she wanted to come, she was going to get the gospel. And if the other kids didn't want to come, then that was sad. But we had to be okay with that. You see, at the foot of the cross, there is level ground. And we need to practice humility when we throw ourselves under the mercy of God and say, God, help me to see everybody the way you see them. Because the way the world sees them is all, all sectioned off into categories. And some of those categories are more appealing than others. God, show me how you see them. How you made them wonderfully and fearfully and wonderfully. So that even if that person smells or they're weird or I just don't get them or they're grating or they're annoying, help me to love them anyway. I want to be so enthusiastic to see them come through the doors of the church as I would to my best friend. Help me to love those people so that I don't have favoritism in my heart. When you look at it, these three areas that James looks at, what we say, who we care for, and how we treat others, may seem like small things, but they reveal our heart. And if our heart is for Jesus, these three areas need to be in the right place. Hypocrisy dies when we practice vocal control, when we answer distress calls, and when we stop showing favoritism, we stop discriminating in the church walls. Let's kill hypocrisy in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord, each one of us knows full well that we have been hypocrites. We have said one thing, we've done the other. We have sinned. And yet we know, Lord, you forgive us. You still work with us. And you haven't given up on us. Help us not to give up on others. Help us not to give up on ourselves. Lord, we want to be men and women who practice what we preach, who say what we think, who are truly there for others. Lord, I know that starts with humility. I know that starts with an admission of our failings. And also an admission that, Lord, you are the one who could indeed practice what they preach, and you could show us in our lives. And so, Lord, we just ask for that today. Be gentle with us, Lord. Be patient. Be forgiving. And thank you, Lord, for continuing to work with us. In your name, amen. To reach out to Pastor Justin, email him at pastor at knoxepc.com. Our mailing address is Knox Church, 2595 Elmwood Avenue, Kenmore, New York, 14217. Join us for worship Sundays at 10.30 a.m. either at Knox Church or on our live stream at facebook.com forward slash knoxepc. Past sermons can be found at knoxepc.com forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.